And for me, my healing played a huge part in me being able to forgive those two young men who were involved in my shooting, but also knew that here in the United States, we have a way of holding people accountable through punishment. I wanted a process that would provide accountability, but also make sure that we are providing rehabilitation for those inside of the justice system. Welcome to this week's episode of Crime Survivors Speak. My name is Aswat Thomas. I'm the National Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. We are a national network of 185,000 crime victims from across the country. If you haven't already subscribed, you can stay up to date on the latest episodes by going to YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming services by clicking the link on your screen or going to the website at www.cssj.org slash podcast. So excited. We're kicking off season two of the Crime Survivors Speak podcast, and we're welcoming back Jonathan Lewis. Uh, we interviewed Jonathan in our last season about his work as our Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice National Training Director to help survivor leaders become strong advocates. And during that interview, Jonathan had some questions for me. So today I'm going to switch roles from being the interviewer to being the interviewee. So thanks so much for coming back to the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Aswad. And welcome to everyone who's listening. Today, it is my pleasure to get to interview you, Aswad, as a person who is my leader, but also an advocate in this fight with crime survivors from all across the country. To kick things off, Aswad, could you tell us a bit about where you grew up and what was your ambitions and dreams when you were growing up as a younger person? So I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, but I spent most of my childhood in Highland Park, Michigan, which is a city within the city limits of Detroit, Michigan. I'm the youngest of five boys. I grew up in a single parent household with my four brothers in two communities riddled with poverty, not a lot of opportunities for jobs, wasn't a lot of resources. And both of those communities in Hartford and in Detroit have been devastated by violence. Both of those cities that I grew up in, you know, there wasn't a lot of hope for uh, young Black boys like myself. And for me, that hope started on the basketball court. At a very young age, basketball wasn't just an outlet for me to escape from my neighborhood, but also was an outlet for me to escape the negative influences that surrounded me. And it was often the only safe place that I had in my neighborhood. So I spent most of my time actually playing basketball or um, attending school, and also spent a lot of my time hanging out with my childhood best friend, Ruben. Ruben and I, we were straight A students. We spent most of our time playing basketball together. We walked to school together. Before we had to take a test, we would stop at the corner store, get a box of nerds. We ate the nerds thinking that it would help us be smarter on, on our tests. And so we did everything together as kids, Ruben and I. But unfortunately, um, in 1993, just weeks before starting the fifth grade, my best friend Ruben, at just 10 years old, was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. Ruben's death changed my life for a very long time. 
and Ruben was the first friend that I lost to violence, but unfortunately he wouldn't be the last. And losing him made me dedicate my life to playing basketball and eventually trying to make it out of my neighborhood. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to fast forward to a point in your life that brought you a little bit into what you do now. I know you tell this story pretty often, which doesn't necessarily mean that it gets easier to talk about. But for the folks listening who aren't familiar with your story, would you share what happened and how that brought you to this work now? Yeah, so, you know, eventually I did actually make it out of my neighborhood and I went on to play college basketball. And I also became the first male in my family to ever graduate from college. I still remember walking across that stage and seeing my mother, you know, with this bright smile on her face because her youngest son, her baby boy, became a college graduate. So this was back in 2009, which was the highest point in my life. I had just graduated from college and I had signed with a basketball agent to start my professional basketball career in Europe. So something, two things that I've worked so hard for my academics and also playing basketball, those were two things that I finally achieved in 2009. So that was like the highest point of my life. Unfortunately, that same summer, it quickly became the lowest point in my life when days before I was supposed to go over to Europe to start my professional basketball career, I was shot twice in my back while leaving a corner store in Hartford, Connecticut. And those bullets ended my professional basketball career and quite frankly, almost ended my life. I remember waking up in the emergency room and seeing my mother and seeing my father and my, my siblings, um, you know, just in that emergency room and tears and crying. And then a doctor walked over to me. Everything kind of felt like a dream. I didn't know why I was laying in this emergency room. I didn't know why my family was in tears. As I was trying to speak, I noticed there were tubes everywhere. And the doctor came over to my side and said, Mr. Thomas, you were shot twice in your back and we don't know if you have been paralyzed or not. And at that very moment, I kind of just broke down because it finally hit me that I became a victim of gun violence. And the first thought that I had was, will I ever play basketball again? Then the second thought, would I ever be able to walk again? That moment, everything changed uh, for me of becoming a victim of gun violence, but also being released from that same hospital, having to live in the same neighborhood where I was shot was another traumatic experience because the doctors told me about my physical challenges that I would have, but nobody prepared me for the psychological effects of being a victim of gun violence. So I was dealing with the PTSD, dealing with the depression, the, the isolation, the nightmares, the physical pain, and also the traumatic experience of being a victim of gun violence and having to live in the same place you were shot without any any support. Could you share, if you don't mind, just a little bit like what support did you get? Did you receive victims' compensation? I was released from, you know, the hospital, as I mentioned, back to the same community uh, where I was shot. No follow-up from the hospital. 
I remember law enforcement coming to visit me several times during my recovery. I just remember every time law enforcement came to visit me, it always contributed to my stress and my anxiety during those conversations with law enforcement. They never shared any information about the victim compensation program or told me about victim services, nor did they even connect me to a victim advocate in their department that's supposed to work with victims like myself. And so my family and I never received any victim services, any victim compensation or mental health services uh, to help me deal with being a victim of gun violence. And I remember like as I was recovering, I was able to walk again. I was able to talk more often than I was before. I remember as I was experiencing those nightmares and those traumatic experiences of being a victim of gun violence, I often thought like, am I the only person who have went through this experience of being a victim and not getting any help? Um, and so I started to think about like, who else do I know who's been a victim who may have gotten any help? Um, so there's a few things that I actually did. I called my father, my father who got shot in his chest in the 1980s. I called him, I said, hey dad, when you got shot, did you get any help? And he said, no, and hung up the phone on me. So then I called my second oldest brother who also got shot in his back in the late 1990s. I said, hey bro, when you got shot, did you get any help? And the answer was no. And then I talked to my, my first cousin who got shot in the early 2000s. And as a result of that shooting, he's been paralyzed from the waist down. I asked him that same question, when you got shot, did you get any help? And the answer was no. So Jonathan, like in my immediate family, five out of the 10 males have been victims of gun violence, but none of us ever received any victim services or was made aware of the victim compensation program. Thank you for sharing that. And so many other people who are victims of crime, particularly victims of violent crimes, don't get access to victims comp, right? Or don't know about it. In our recent study with crime survivors for safety and justice, we found that 47% would have liked the service, but didn't know how to access it. Looking back on your story and the connection you made between the person your doctor described and the person who shot you, what's important for people to understand about how harm can pass from person to person without adequate care or support? That's one of the things that changed my life was during my last doctor's appointment to remove the bullets out of my back. As I'm laying on the operating table, my doctor, as he's performing surgery on me, digging in my flesh to remove these bullets out of my back, he started to tell me the story of another young man who he had treated a few years before I got shot. And he talked about this teenager who was 14 years old at the time. That young man was shot in his face. And as a result of that shooting, he had lost sight in one of his eyes. As he was sharing those details, I just remember like laying on the operating table and like my heart just started to beat faster and faster because I was realizing he was describing the teenager that had shot me. And I remember telling my doctor, I said, hey, doctor, his name is Dr. William Marshall um, at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. I said, hey, Dr. Marshall, can you pause the surgery because I need to tell you something? And I said, hey, I'm not sure if you realize or you know this, but you just described the person that shot me. 
And I remember Dr. Marshall just like, you know, he paused and he said, I can't believe this happened. He said, as why just like you, we released that same teenager from this same hospital back into that same community. And years later, he was involved in your shooting. And I just remember uh, going home that evening, just constantly was thinking about like what it must have been like for that teenager to really deal with that pain, that PTSD, that anger, that resentment of something that I knew I was all too familiar with those thoughts and, and experiences. And just being able to handle that at 14 years old, but also living with a now physical disability of losing sight in one of his eyes, right? And so I thought about that young man and what he was experiencing. And then I thought about, you know, what would have been like if that teenager had received victim services? You know, maybe he wouldn't have led a life of crime that turned to uh, shooting me that night. But then I also thought about if I would have never got shot, I probably would have been overseas playing professional basketball and not spending, you know, a year on my mother's couch recovering from those wounds. So I thought about that young man a lot. And for my family and like millions of people like us, especially in communities of color, that lack of support, mental health services, that has a long lasting and devastating impact on victims and families far beyond any physical wounds. Wow. When I first joined the team, I think we were in Houston. You came out and you shared this story. And for some reason today, it feels different. I am grateful that you are here, but I also want to just acknowledge that your leadership here is important. And I want to I want to jump into just some the advocacy piece of this and tell us a little bit about how you found your way to Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice and became the national director. Did you set out to take on this role, this leadership role, or did it just happen organically? You know, I would have loved to had a professional basketball career, would love to help take care of my mom, help take care of my family, help take care of my oldest brother who's been incarcerated for 23 years now. I would love to been able to just have a profession where I'm able to help support myself and my family. So it's been very difficult having something that you've worked so hard for come to an end because of trauma. What led me to this work was one, learning about that young man who had shot me, him becoming a victim of gun violence. So the second thing that kind of led me to this work was the day that I went to trial, preparing to testify against the person who was arrested in my shooting. I remember being downstairs and talking to the prosecutor and the detective in my case. I remember them telling me of what to expect through this process and that this will be the first time that I will see someone who they believe was involved in my shooting. So I remember that first day of trial being extremely nervous. And I remember asking the prosecutor, I said, hey, before I go upstairs to testify, you know, can I talk to the young man who they had arrested? And I remember my detective kind of jumping in saying, why would you want to talk to someone who almost killed you, who ended your basketball career? Why would you want to talk to someone like that. And I remember uh, telling the detective that, you know, I wasn't angry. I wanted to talk to that young man to kind of know what he was going through in his life. And I want to let him know that I, that I did forgive him for that shooting. And then I remember the prosecutor and said, hey, Mr. Thomas, we don't allow victims to talk to perpetrators. So we have to go forward with the process. 
So when I heard that, I was it kind of felt bad that I wasn't able to talk to that uh, young man. And then I remember asking the prosecutor, so, hey, if this young man was to get found guilty, how much time would he be facing? And they said that he would probably be facing, if found guilty, up to 40 years in prison. And that right there, it hit me because he's 19 years old at the time, get found guilty and, you know, he spent, you know, 40 years in prison. That didn't sit right with me. For one, you know, my brother, you know, is serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. So I know like the devastated impacts that incarceration can have on someone in their family. And I didn't want to put that uh, young man or his family through that experience that my family was going through and continues to go through. So I ended up advocating for uh, that young man to take a plea deal. And so he eventually uh, didn't go to trial. He took a plea deal to be sentenced to six to 10 years in prison. And, you know, and, and I felt good about that. I felt good about, one, him being held accountable for his actions, but also felt good that knowing that he would be able to come home before his 30th birthday to live a productive life. And also at that time, I also thought about, you know, maybe when he is released, I can be there to help support him. So that was the second thing that kind of got me thinking about the victimization that happened, or also the impact that incarceration have on people of color, especially young Black men. But then a third thing that kind of led me to this work was connecting with other survivors, other families who've lost loved ones to violence, victims of domestic violence and sexual assault in my community in Hartford, Connecticut. But also I'm talking to other crime victims about we all share this common theme of being a victim of violence and not getting any support or services. Um, and so I wanted to do something about that. I went back to school to get my master's degree in social work from the University of Connecticut because I wanted to give back to my community. I wanted to give back to others just like me. And that led me to joining Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. Many people don't know my first day at Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice was on the six-year anniversary of my shooting. So for me that day, everything just came full circle. A day that I always associated with a negative experience, now providing me with such an awesome, amazing, positive experience of joining Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. Mm. When you were going through that process of contemplating, wanting to talk to the teenager, were you alone? Like, what was the atmosphere? Just were you alone? Were you with your family? Did you consult with your family first? Or were you just wrestling with those thoughts with yourself and making those decisions? Yeah, and it actually happened quite quickly um, during that first day of trial. I remember my mother had dropped me off at the courthouse because she had to go to work. So I was alone in that office with the prosecutor and the detective. And I started to think about the other young man that had shot me. I started to think about all the friends that I had grew up with. Many of them became victims. Many of them, um, you know, at some point came in contact with the justice system. And I knew that for me, my healing played a huge part in me being able to forgive those two young men who were involved in my shooting, but also knew that here in the United States, we have a way of holding people accountable through punishment. I wanted a process that would provide accountability, but also make sure that we are providing rehabilitation for those inside of the justice system, but also think of how can we help that young man and his family. And I just knew that him being sentenced for 40 years in jail wasn't going to do much for me. I mean, it wasn't going to do much for his family. You know, what I've learned through 
this work is that by talking to other crime victims, often we actually prefer shorter prison sentences rather than long-term prison sentences. We also prefer more rehabilitation instead of punishing people as well. Yeah. And just thinking about the recent survey that we released last year in 2022, that 68% of crime victims often prefer investments in other things like prevention, mental health, crisis assistance over longer prison sentences. So you now fast forward, you're part of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice and is the national director. What sort of work do you do as the national director of CSSJ? And what aspects of your role do you find most enjoyable? Mm. <laughs> so as the national director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, you know, we have over 180 plus thousand members across the country. We have chapters in almost 10 states across the country that are led by crime survivors who are providing peer-to-peer support to people who are hosting survivor-centered meetings and events, things like healing vigils and resource fairs. They're being trained by leaders like you, Jonathan, to organize, to help understand policy, but also how to run campaigns and also how to develop policies as well. And also, you know, being able to help shift the narrative in the media about who crime survivors are, right, and what we want out of the justice system. So in my role as the national director, and and one of the things that, you know, I really enjoy uh, the most is connecting with other members. For the past 10 years of my life traveling and connecting with survivors across different experiences, from meeting with parents who've lost children to gun violence, meeting with other survivors of gun violence like myself, meeting with domestic violence and sexual assault, human trafficking victims, listening to their stories, which are very hard. Similar to my experience, many uh, victims don't get access to services and resources. And the thing that I enjoy the most is just like listening to their stories, but also helping them along their healing journey to help find their voice and also to help give back to their communities, start their own organizations, which many of our members have done across the country to help fill a gap that exists in communities, but also being able to help identify policies to work on to help advance public safety reforms in their communities. Just last week, I was in Florida. I was joined by over 60 survivors and organizations across the state of Florida. And so just being in a space where you're in a community of survivors and you are advocating for the same goal, which is more trauma recovery, more services for the organizations that are providing support, but also making sure that we're advocating for a better justice system that really prioritizes the healing the prevention that's needed in communities. So that's, you know, one of the things I enjoy the most. Also enjoy meeting with legislators to help educate them about what crime survivors are going through, but also to help uplift the important role that legislators can play in helping to build a better infrastructure of victim services, but also a vision of our criminal justice system, which has failed so many communities across the country. One thing I want to just say I know how hard you work to get to this space and how dedicated you were listening to other crime survivors, members, their stories is so important to you. I've seen your passion and your commitment to this work and making sure that our leaders got what they needed and that we are changing policy for the betterment of crime victims and communities who's been hardest hit by crime and violence. 
Would you tell us a little bit about your vision for this podcast, the audience that you're really wanting to speak to, and how you want this podcast to support survivors? You know, just to get a little bit of background, how this podcast came about. It's been years in the making. It's been years of like listening to survivors and just seeing so many amazing people across the country that are truly healing through action. And so for victims and, and survivors of violence, you know, there are many pathways to recovery and storytelling is a huge part of that journey for many of us. And that was a huge part of my healing was being able to uh, share my story. So we launched the Crime Survivor Speak podcast to really help elevate the, the stories and the amazing leadership of these individuals from across the country that are truly transforming our entire safety and justice system. So in season one, we've heard from so many amazing survivors that have started their own organizations out of a gap that existed in their communities. We've talked to survivors that have became published authors. We've talked to survivors that have helped to establish more trauma recovery centers across the country. So in season two, I'm really looking forward to, you know, connecting with more survivors um, across the country, but really to drill down and having more conversations about safety. For many survivors, especially survivors in communities of color, safety has never been equated with being tough on crime for most crime victims. Safety has never been about locking people up for as long as we can. Safety is about helping crime victims recover Safety is about preventing violence. Uh, safety is also ensuring that people who may have caused harm, that they have access to rehabilitative programs while they're incarcerated, but also have a reason to re pursue those programs through things like productivity credits and earned credits programs. But also safety is also about ensuring that when people come out of the justice system, they can access things like, you know, housing jobs, education, things that help promote stability and a better quality of life for themselves and their families. So I'm excited to have more conversations with survivors on like what safety means to them and what they envision safety look like in their community. I also want this podcast to be a, just another layer of support for survivors to listen to stories, listen to people like them that are healing, also to reach a broader audience, more survivors, more advocates, more legislators, more service providers, more decision makers to really help inspire people to use their voice, use their influence to make a change in victim services and also criminal justice policies across the country. So thank you, Aswar, so much for just taking the time to just share your story and share about how you got into this work, but also your vision overall for not only just CSSJ, but also for this podcast and how you want it to expand. And so with that, Thank you so much to everyone for listening to today's episode. To become a member of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice or join our email list, visit the website at www.cssj.org to join a chapter near you or our national network. Remember, you can tune into all podcast episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming platforms. We are healing through action. When survivors speak, change happens.